0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. Uh, This is episode eight, and it's going to be a special episode, not only because of the topic, but also because we have our first episode with a co-host, and that co-host is Cassie Ying. Cassie, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hey, Rohan. Glad to be here today. I'm Cassie, and I'll be a senior in high school next year. I've been writing for Street Fins for a little over a year
0: now. So, Cassie, in addition to writing for Street Fins, as a rising senior, I also know you're hard at work writing those college apps. How are those coming along? Well,
1: they're coming along. Um, It's a slow but steady process, as you know, and I'm hoping that it gets better as time goes on.
0: Yeah, and I'd imagine you have quite a bit of time to do that at home with quarantine in place. Uh, What else have you been doing during quarantine?
1: Actually, funny that you asked that. Um, I just came from my internship this summer where we're basically studying water conservation. Oh, interesting. Uh, And basically, we study how water works in California, how it gets to our city and our homes and what we can do to conserve it uh, in times of drought and even non-times of drought. And we're culminating in basically a water documentary at the end of summer.
0: Yeah, I'd love to see that documentary when it comes out. Sounds like a lot of information that needs to be given to uh, residents in California, at least, about how their water is sustained, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, Cassie, this podcast is all about making the seemingly complex world of finance, economics, and money understandable for everyone, right?
1: Exactly. But I think the topic we're discussing today is far from simple. Hopefully, our guest will help us break down the complexities of racial economic inequality by first taking a look at our nation's past, present, and future. I mean, it's such a timeless and timely topic to discuss, given the news surrounding police brutality and the protests. In fact, uh, reading about the racial inequality entrenched in our society in my own time made me realize that this problem is more economically based than it may seem.
0: Definitely. I totally agree with that. I think our guest today, you know, we did our research on him. uh, We think that his background makes him probably one of the most qualified people in America to talk about and simplify the topic of Racial Economic Inequality. He will help us simplify the history of discrimination. Uh, He'll help us simplify the present economic situation. And excitingly, he's also going to introduce some potential solutions for this issue. It should be a fascinating conversation. So let's just get to simplifying. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. If you've been paying attention to the news in the past few weeks, you've probably been watching a lot more stories about race and racial tensions in America, and hearing people say things like this. Racial inequity, racial inequality in America, a growing racial wealth gap. The topic of today's episode is racial economic inequality, and it's not anything new. You may have been reading about racism in a social or political context, but we wanted to learn more about the economic aspect of the issue. Yet when we tried doing research into it, we found a worrying trend. The relationship between race and economic conditions and outcomes was not being studied enough in the academic world. In fact, it was being studied less and less by professional economists. Our guest today is Dr. William Darity Jr. and he's one of the few economists who has taken the time to truly understand this issue. His work is so important and impressive that I think I'll just let him introduce himself.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm the Samuel Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics at Duke, and I also direct the Samuel Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. A large dimension of my research agenda has been focused on questions concerning economic inequality, particularly between social groups, ethnic groups, gender groups, and religious groups as well.
0: When I asked Dr. Darity about whether or not he views the issue of racial economic inequality differently based on the three subjects he teaches, uh, economics, public policy, and African-American studies, here's what he had to say.
2: I don't really partition my economist side and my public policy side, nor even my African-American studies side.
0: That's wonderful, Dr. Darity. I'm curious to know how you You know, when we're both students, Cassie and I, but when you were a student going into college, why did you decide to study economics and then also now specialize in the topics you just mentioned?
2: When I first started college, I already had a deep curiosity about what types of explanations there were for the inequities that I was observing in the world. I was curious about why some people were poor and other people were rich. Uh, I was curious about why some regions of the world had much higher levels of income than others, why certain social groups uh, in the U.S. context, for example, contrasting blacks and whites, uh, why some social groups had so much less than others. And so I assume since this was a focus that was directed to material differences in people's lives, that economics must be the field where I could get good answers. So I started taking economics classes and discovered that I was deeply dissatisfied with the answers that I was getting. So with the hubris of youth, I decided I would become an economist to change the way that economists think about these issues. I'm not sure I've had much of an impact on how economists view these issues, but fortunately, as of late, some of the ideas that I've been advancing have appeared to have gained a certain degree of credibility and interest, particularly among policymakers.
0: I'll hand it off to my co-host, Cassie, who will go into the history of discrimination and its impacts.
1: Thanks, Rohan. So, to truly understand the cause of racial-economic inequality in the 21st century, we must go back in time to the end of the Civil War. Most of us are familiar with slavery in a brief sense. Europe started it, it made its way to America, post-Revolutionary War America continued it, and then it ended with Lincoln, the Civil War, and the Reconstruction Amendments. What many people may not understand is what happened to the newly emancipated slaves and how it laid the foundation for later events. Can you tell us about what happened to them and what they were promised after they were freed?
2: The newly emancipated folks were promised 40 acre land grants as restitution for their years of unrequited and unpaid service. These 40 acre land grants were initially embodied in a special order that General Sherman issued in Savannah, Georgia in January, 1865. And in that special order, Sherman actually designated a strip of land that stretched from South Carolina to Northern Virginia as territory that was supposed to be assigned to the formerly enslaved. This was land that was primarily property that had been held by the former slaveholders prior to the Civil War. And so there was a sense of justice that was involved in designating those lands for the formerly enslaved. What actually happened was about 40,000 of the formerly enslaved were settled on 400,000 acres. But even that allocation was removed from them when President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor after Lincoln's murder, reversed the land allocation process. Now, what's interesting about special orders number 15 is that the actual territory that was assigned by Sherman was approximately 5.3 million acres of land, and this was substantially more than the 400,000 that were actually settled upon, but the 5.3 million acres never was allocated to the formerly enslaved. In addition, if you were to take into account the fact that there were 4 million formerly enslaved persons, and if you treat the 40 acres as being an allotment per household, then you're really talking about a promised total of 40 million acres, and clearly that didn't occur either. Instead, what occurred was the allocation of 160-acre lots of land to many, many white Americans in the western part of the country, land that had been appropriated from the Native communities in the west, and allocated to such an extent that there are estimates that range between 45 to 90 million living white Americans who were beneficiaries of those land allocations. So you had a white community that received substantial handouts in the form of land allotments, while you had a black community that emerges from slavery and receives no restitution whatsoever.
1: There's a lot to unpack here. Essentially, formerly enslaved were promised restitution for their time as slaves in the form of land grants. But when it came time for the government back then to deliver those land grants, Rather than giving those grants of land to the formerly enslaved, they gave it to white landowners. These land grants, like Special Orders 15, are crucial to understand, as they served as one of the starting points for racial economic inequality today. These land grants, back in the 19th century, would have allowed the newly freed African-Americans a way to begin creating wealth through working the land. The profits these black households would have generated would power their own community economy making each other wealthier. In turn, that wealth would have grown from generation to generation. In fact, some estimates have valued that strip of promised land in Special Orders 15 at about $6 trillion today. This opportunity to achieve financial prosperity from working the land was taken away just as quickly as it was promised and given to none other than Southern plantation owners who had already built wealth with slaves. We would expect the anti-slavery union to have asked the Confederates in the South to make some concessions to help out the black community get on its feet and have access to wealth building opportunities. But when I asked Dr. Darity about whether or not any concessions were made, here's a surprising answer we got.
2: Actually, the Union didn't have to make any concessions whatsoever to the South in the immediate aftermath of the war. There was an expectation on the part of the defeated Confederates that the Union was going to impose the peace on them, and that the components of that peace would include a guarantee of the right to vote on the part of Black men, as well as the allocation of substantial amounts of land to the formerly enslaved. But Andrew Johnson, as president of the United States, and I would argue that Andrew Johnson probably is the worst president that the United States ever had. Andrew Johnson decided to take a very accommodationist view towards the former Confederates, who were in fact traitors to the Republic. And as a consequence, he rolled back all of the initiatives that were being put forward to provide the formerly enslaved with full citizenship.
1: President Johnson was very accommodating, to say the least, of the South's unwillingness to reform. He granted pardons and restored political power to the ex-Confederates, effectively excluding Blacks from political participation. As for economic reform, he ignored Sherman's field order by returning Southern land to pre-Civil War era landowners and slave owners.
2: As a consequence, We go into the latter part of the 19th century with a set of circumstances that lead to an array of atrocities that are continuously inflicted upon Black Americans and that result in the enormous wealth disparities that we now observe in the present.
1: One of the atrocities is the imposing of something called the Black Codes. How were Black Codes affecting Black Americans in the labor market or in property?
2: The Black Codes get introduced primarily because the ways in which Andrew Johnson abrogated the Reconstruction period permitted Southern legislatures that were frequently controlled by ex-Confederates to introduce a set of laws that attempted to, in effect, restore the types of conditions that existed for Black Americans under slavery. One dimension of this was a set of limitations on employment opportunities, including limitations on the capacity of an individual Black employee to actually leave a job if the job was unsafe or dangerous or underpaid. So, not only were there controls on which types of jobs a Black person could hold, but there were also controls on their capacity to exit from their jobs. There were also controls placed upon the degree of authority that individual Black parents had over their children, so that the control of their children's lives was actually shifted to white Americans. And of course, land deprivation was in the cards from the very moment that the 40-acre commitment was lost.
1: Can you go a little bit more into the link between property, wealth, and economic opportunity, especially in this period?
2: If we look at the 19th century, I think that, well, actually today, most people don't realize that the largest component of the nation's uh, gross domestic product is actually real estate or real estate transactions in some sense. But if we go back to the end of the 19th century, this is a period in which the most significant source of wealth is land. And so the combination of the deprivation of land on the part of black folks, and the provision of significant amounts of land to white folks sets up the wealth disparity that carries over across generations. But to compound matters, during the course of the latter part of the 19th century, up until World War II or so, There was a series of white massacres that took place in cities and and towns both north and south throughout the United States where black lives were taken and black property was either destroyed or seized by whites, again, altering the wealth distribution in their favor. And there are perhaps upwards of 100 cases of these types of massacres. I think the ones that people are most familiar with are probably the massacre that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 that destroyed a prosperous Black community that was known as the Greenwood District.
1: The community was called Black Wall Street, right?
2: Yeah, in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, There also is a a community that was referred to as a Black Wall Street in my hometown of Durham, North Carolina. And that was also a relatively prosperous business district with a surprisingly well developed financial sector. But that business district was destroyed by the running of a highway through the heart of the Black entrepreneurial zone. And that occurred in many cities throughout the United States as well. And in fact, in Tulsa, after the Greenwood community begins to recover, and restore some of the business activity that had taken place before the massacre, a highway is run through their business district. So they got the double whammy of a violent massacre, as well as the dissection of their business community by a highway.
1: Tulsa stood out as the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. Prior to the violence, Tulsa was known as the wealthiest Black community in the United States. But after white rioters devastated black businesses and homes and took black lives, as Dr. Darity mentions, Tulsa was never compensated for the damage. In fact, they were denied the ability to keep the wealth they had recovered because of the development of a highway. Tulsa was just one of many such occurrences to have happened in history.
2: Another would have been the 1898 massacre that took place in Wilmington, North Carolina, where white supremacists overthrew a duly elected mixed race government in the city. But also in the year 1919, There were upwards of 35 to 36 of these massacres that took place in cities ranging from Chicago, Illinois, to towns like Elaine, Arkansas. So you had a process of destruction or appropriation of Black property that took place on an ongoing basis from the end of the Civil War up until the beginning of the 1950s. These
1: communities that were mentioned were relatively large centers for economic activity and financial opportunity for Black communities. Now, if major centers for financial and economic opportunity in the Black community, so-called Black Wall Streets, are destroyed time and time again, then the ability to create and keep wealth throughout generations in these communities is significantly limited. Because predominantly prosperous white communities of the time had no racially targeted wealth destruction, combined with the full access to labor and wealth-building opportunities in previous years, There was a large, drastic shift in the wealth distribution among the Black and white populations of the time. Is it any wonder that those shifts in wealth distribution skewed against the Black population led to the wealth inequality we see today? This distribution in wealth was further created and exacerbated by discrimination in home ownership.
2: In the 20th century, this is compounded further by the importance that we begin to assign to home ownership as a source of wealth and the way in which home ownership was racialized. So the first dimension of this process of creating unequal home ownership between blacks and whites is associated with the initial phase of residential segregation, which was executed by restrictive covenants. And these are deeds that dictate explicitly that Black people could not purchase homes in particular neighborhoods. Restrictive covenants are ultimately declared illegal by the United States Supreme Court, but then they're succeeded by the application of a practice known as redlining, which is credit deprivation for Blacks if they're attempting to move into a neighborhood that is restricted, not necessarily legally restricted, but de facto restricted, or they're also denied credit if they want to purchase even in the neighborhoods where there's already a significant Black presence. And so redlining is a way in which Black ownership is further constricted.
1: The concept of redlining goes back to the days when lenders would physically pull out a map and draw red lines to mark neighborhoods often populated by minorities. They would abstain from investing in these locations and deny loans to African-Americans with better credit than whites. The federal government picked up this practice around the 1930s, resulting in huge gaps in real estate value, even to this day. Real estate value is important in determining someone's credit, or ability to apply and qualify for loans at good interest rates, especially when that loan is a mortgage. A person with bad credit could get stuck paying high interest rates on mortgages and could get caught up with predatory loans. A person with good credit could get favorable and manageable interest rates on loans, meaning they could pay them off more cheaply and more easily. Having good credit is important because it can allow you to buy things like homes, mortgage loans, and actually manage to pay them off. But because home values were lower in Black neighborhoods, that combined with the previously established factors that deprived Black people of wealth and good financial statuses led to Black people either getting no access to credit and mortgages to finance buying a home with or getting a mortgage loan with higher than manageable interest rates that they couldn't manage to pay off. That started a destructive cycle in which home ownership and housing, something that was working mostly for white Americans at the time, started working against the Black population.
2: A final step in this process is the post-World War II introduction of the most important social mobility promoting legislation that was ever introduced in the United States, apart from the Homestead Act allocations of 160 acres in the 19th century. This most important social mobility step was the GI Bill legislation that was passed to provide Benefits to the returning veterans from from World War II. Those benefits were placed at the control of local authorities, and this decentralized control over these benefits resulted in a situation in which, throughout the South, black veterans were systematically denied any significant access to those benefits, which included support for home ownership. So, for example, in the state of Mississippi, there were only two Black veterans who received any home mortgage support from the GI Bill.
1: With all the discrimination going on in the South at this time, it made me wonder how the North is doing. After all, it was the North that wanted to abolish slavery during the Civil War. Was there any significance between the North and South in regards to discriminatory policies?
2: Well, the North has extensive residential segregation. It's got redlining. It's got predatory lending. It also has discriminatory practices that are taking place in employment as well as housing and credit markets. The North also has police forces that engage in anti-Black violence. So there is a sense in which the North is not fundamentally different from the South. The biggest difference is that in the North, you did not tend to have the same degree of public accommodation segregation or access to public places that were assigned on a segregated basis. But in terms of economic well being and economic status, Blacks' lives in northern cities were extremely challenged as well.
1: So the North, it seems, was not as progressive as it had seemed compared to the South. With the difference of less public segregation, the economic conditions for Black people in the North. Were basically the same as in the South. Now back to Rohan.
0: Thanks, Cassie. With all that history established, now it's time to take a look at the impacts of the past on present racial inequalities. Thanks for all that history, Dr. Darity. A lot of it seemed to me that there were several key moments where Black communities were denied access to building wealth, whether that was the destruction of prosperous communities like in Durham or in Tulsa, as well as through the racist housing practices as well as the initial 40-acre, the Special Orders 15, that was never delivered. So what are some of the outcomes of that today? So what are like some of the statistics that people should be paying attention to that discrimination in the past has caused?
2: In the new book that Kirsten Mullen and I have written, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, we actually argue that you need to examine racial wealth differences To capture the full cumulative intergenerational effects of the kinds of damages that have been imposed on Black Americans, particularly the economic damages that have been imposed on Black Americans. So we look at the racial wealth differential as the best index of the entire historical trajectory of atrocities that have taken place under the orbit of white supremacy in the United States. So one of the statistics that I think is very useful is the fact that we can recognize that globally, there's approximately $300 trillion in wealth. And about $100 trillion or one third of that is held by households in the United States. And out of that, 90% is held by white Americans. In contrast, black Americans, although constituting 13% of the nation's population, only possess about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. This results in in the following kind of disparity. The average black household has a net worth of $800,000 less than the average white household. Another way to think about these kinds of disparities is among white American households, about 25% have a net worth in excess of $1 million, but only 4% of black households have a similar level of net worth. Furthermore, if you were to consider the poorest whites in the United States, say folks whose incomes are in the lowest 20% of the income distribution, Those individuals, the lowest income whites, have a higher median value of wealth than all black Americans taken together. I think it's really critical to distinguish between wealth and income because people frequently confuse the two. Where income is a flow of resources that comes to you, we usually frequently calculate it across a year, a flow of resources that's primarily associated with your earnings. Whereas wealth, is the net value of your property it's the difference between what you owe and what you own it's also another way to think about it is your assets minus your debts and what's particularly significant about wealth is it permits you to have or execute or exercise a wide range of opportunities that you would be denied in the absence of those resources so for example if you have a shortfall in income that might be due to a loss of a job or a medical catastrophe, if you are in a wealthier household, that type of storm can be weathered more easily.
0: Let's pause for a second and quickly recap a key concept, the difference between income and wealth. As Dr. Darity said, income relies primarily on your job, so it's the amount of money you get at regular intervals from earnings. On the other hand, Wealth refers to the amount of money you or your family has accumulated, hence the term generational wealth. This distinction is particularly important in times like these. With COVID and the unemployment crisis, many people who've been stripped of a steady source of income likewise have no wealth to fall back on. Wealth grants more opportunities than income does, as Dr. Darity explains.
2: If you're in a wealthier household, you'll probably have a greater opportunity to purchase quality education at all levels of schooling, but particularly at the college and university level, and come out of college and university without any student loan debt. If you're in a wealthier household, you'll have a greater capacity to engage in the political process effectively. If you're in a wealthier household, you can purchase quality legal counsel when you're dealing with the criminal justice system. And if you're in a wealthier household, obviously, there's the greater possibility of parents and grandparents leaving the newest generation some significant bequest that permits them to be economically secure and have a high degree of economic opportunity as
0: well. Those were a lot of statistics. And the one that really stood out to me was that the sort of process you applied was you looked at the incomes for all the types of different economic classes, whether it's upper class, middle class, or the bottom 20 percent. And you saw the difference between those levels of uh, wealth for white Americans and for Black Americans. And you still saw that there was still such a big difference. So that that stood out to me. Going back to some of the ways that the Black community was denied wealth building opportunities, specifically with housing, you mentioned redlining, but there was also another process called blockbusting. Could you go into what that was?
2: Blockbusting is a procedure in which Neighborhood turnover would be engineered by real estate agents, but the the ultimate outcome would be a higher price being paid by Blacks to get into homes whose value would not appreciate at the same rate as white-owned homes once the neighborhood had become Black. So the blockbusting real estate agent would do the following. Encourage a Black family to purchase a home in a white neighborhood and this home would probably be overpriced, at least initially. And to the extent that that family is not driven out of the neighborhood, which frequently took place, the real estate agent could go to the whites living in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and tell them that their neighborhood was in imminent threat of turnover and their property values would decline, and that he or she could arrange sales of the properties at prices that would still be lucrative for them if they would agree to sell immediately. And so in many cases, that's what people did the neighborhood then in fact turns over and it becomes a neighborhood that is largely a Black neighborhood. And in that context, the home values do not climb as rapidly as they do in other sections of the city where home ownership is predominantly white. And so not only do you have a situation in which Black home ownership rates are reduced by some of the policies that I've described, but the equity value that Blacks accumulate in homes, regardless of the structural characteristics of the home, are considerably less. I, I think there's an estimate from the Brookings Institution from a report that the lead author, Andre Perry, wrote. There's a report that I think that there's some something in the vicinity of a fifty to $60,000 differential in the equity values of Black-owned and white-owned
0: homes. Yeah, I I read through one of your reports that you've written with several other economists uh, that sort of was myth-busting. And I think you put it like kind of perfectly that because of things like redlining and blockbusting and other uh, housing practices, just simply owning a home isn't enough to get wealth when the equity value of that home is already so low. I think there's some statistic where the average home ownership rate of the black community in Los Angeles is higher than other places. Yet they're still poorer because the value of those homes itself isn't high because of things like uh, well, historical. It, it, like- it,
2: it's not a higher rate of home ownership than other places because I think nationwide it's about 47%. But what's striking in the LA context is the black home ownership rate is about 42%, or it was at the point when we did the survey. But the home ownership rate among Asian Indians is closer to 41%. So it's it's actually mildly lower. But the wealth differential between the two communities is, is immense, where the median wealth in the Asian Indian communities in excess of $400,000, and it's closer to $4,000 in the black community. So despite the fact that the black community has a higher home ownership rate, it has a considerably lower level of wealth. And this is suggestive of the idea that home ownership in and of itself is not a mechanism for closing the racial wealth gap.
0: Because of all like the financial repression that's been going on throughout history, um, how does this affect the credit of black communities and how does that also in turn affect the types of financing they're getting for other types of things
2: So credit actually generally operates in a discriminatory fashion but particularly in housing markets where you know they've done a series of what we might call field experiments that demonstrate that when blacks and whites apply for credit particularly for home ownership purposes blacks are more likely to be denied despite having equivalent credit worthiness as whites. And in some of the experiments, the profile that's given to the black applicants gives them a higher degree of credit worthiness than the white applicants. But the white applicants typically are far more likely to actually receive the loan. So it's it's a discriminatory application in credit markets. And it doesn't seem to be erased by the presence of competitive factors in credit markets.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because you know, some people might think that throughout just history with all these events that repressed the Black community from achieving any kind of wealth, that would naturally lead to poor credit scores and less of an ability to even qualify, regardless of race. But now that you mentioned that there's already discriminatory practices, that is a bit more mind-blowing on my end.
2: There's no doubt that the average black credit score is lower than the average white credit score. But what's critical about these field experiments is that when you give blacks and whites similar credit scores, you get very different outcomes in terms of access to lending.
0: Right. And moving on from housing to the idea of educational quality and just access to education. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go start college in the fall at USC. And Cassie's a rising senior in high school, but we're we're in such a fortunate space to not take loans, and that again ties into the idea of credit and what as well because of loans right? Could you talk about the idea of just how college is playing a role in everything and the cost of college as well as it relates to all the disparity going on?
2: Yeah, student loan debt plays into this game because black Americans are so motivated to get higher education, and you know this may surprise people, but because they are they're at at greater risk of having to incur high levels of student loan debt because the wealth position of their families is so much weaker. In fact, you know, when I talk about this motivation for higher education, if you were to control for family income or household income, young black people actually get more years of schooling and earn more degrees than young white people from families with similar levels of income. And so to the extent that these families may have similar levels of income, but vastly different levels of wealth, then there's a different kind of pressure placed upon the black student to finance their education. And they will have to rely more heavily on borrowing. So they're more likely to come out of college with some significant burden in terms of loan debt because of their motivation to actually acquire higher education. So there's kind of a two-edged sword here that's operating college education usually gives you access to better paid jobs relative to other black folks but it also means that you will come away with a debt burden that has to be addressed as well
0: playing into this idea of education uh, it's well known that the wealthier a certain community or neighborhood is the better type of public education there is simply because of property taxes as well as other just as well as wealthy just residents in general i'm curious to know is there like a is there a stronger correlation between Uh, Race and economic success is measured by things like income or the quality of the community as measured by things like school quality and neighborhood safety and economic
2: success. Again, I want to make the distinction between income and wealth. And so more affluent Black families typically have relatively higher levels of income, but they don't have comparable levels of wealth not with respect to whites who have similar levels of income. So to the extent that you also need the resources associated with wealth to get the biggest bang in terms of community characteristics or school characteristics or the like, then there's still going to be a differential. And even if black students are in the same schools with white students, they are not necessarily receiving the same curriculum and instruction. And this is because of a phenomenon that we refer to as racialized tracking, which is a tendency to concentrate Black students disproportionately in the least challenging classes that are offered in the school while having them be grossly underrepresented in the most challenging classes. So as an illustration, if you were to look at what people typically call regular courses in schools, if If it's a school that's desegregated at the facility level, you're going to find a much larger share of your black students in the regular courses. and you'll find very few of them in advanced placement classes, honors classes, or if your school has it, international baccalaureate courses. So desegregation of schools does not necessarily mean desegregation of instruction and curriculum, and this is one of the more virulent ways in which educational inequality is sustained, and it's, it's predicated on treating Black students as being intrinsically inferior students, when, of course, there's no basis for that except the way in which the school system crafts their course taken.
0: So to recap what we just talked about, housing and education both play a huge role in determining economic outcomes for the Black community. Now, I'll hand the conversation back over to Cassie, who will go more into the idea of access to finance and financial markets.
1: Yeah, so financial markets are basically markets like the stock market, or the bond market, or the foreign exchange market. Any type of exchange or market where securities like stocks, debt, and other types of investments are traded is considered a financial market. Capital markets are a type of financial market. Both the stock and bond markets are types of capital markets. Venture capital is also a type of capital market for entrepreneurs with startups. Having access to capital markets provides a way for people to invest in stocks, bonds, private startups, and other types of investments. These investments have the chance to appreciate in value and grow your wealth. But Black people's access to capital markets has been limited and heavily discouraged, to
2: say the least. The differential in access to finance and capital markets is probably most evident in the context of black entrepreneurship, where there is significant evidence that, again, black entrepreneurs who are seeking to start a business or expand a business are going to be confronted with greater difficulty in obtaining loans at interest rates that are comparable to the loans that might be given to white entrepreneurs even if their business operations are not substantially different in scale. Now, to be clear, Black businesses are generally far, far smaller than the typical white business. If you were to take all of the Black-owned businesses together and look at their annual sales revenue, it's about one-third of the sales revenue of Walmart taken alone. If you were to take the uh, the top five black banks, they have assets in the vicinity of about two billion dollars, whereas J.P. Morgan Chase alone has assets in the vicinity of two trillion dollars. So there's this vast differential in scale between black- owned businesses and white-owned businesses, and part of that is attributable to differential access to quality loans. However, I think that the more fundamental issue is that people frequently think about business development as a way of building wealth, rather than thinking about the causation in the reverse way, where wealth accumulation facilitates business development. And I think that it's very, very important in understanding the low scale and magnitude of Black-owned businesses in the context of the fact that the Black community has such little wealth. Because of the processes of intergenerational transmission of resources that start with the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with the 40-acre land.
1: Yeah, I think too often we think about the American dream, the self-made man, as like starting from zero. But that's not true because some people, they start from something higher or they have a source of funding to grow and be taken seriously by
2: investors. Yeah, I think our most successful entrepreneurs are not necessarily from wealthy families, but they're definitely not from poor families.
1: And there you have it. Access to financial markets and funding for business development plays a large factor in how Black families grow their wealth and how Black businesses expand their revenues. Without access to these markets, people don't have the same opportunities as wealthier people to explore investing or to fund business ventures or even just simply getting a loan on good terms. I talked about financial markets, but I'll hand it back to Rohan to talk more about financial literacy and potential solutions to the racial wealth disparities.
0: You know, we're a podcast called Finance Simplified, and even we understand that financial literacy without having access to things like, well, first off, money and all the things that can cause, uh, like you know, investing and trading. Financial literacy without finance is it's meaningless. So, could you explain your thoughts on how we view financial literacy as it relates to racial?
2: inequality? Yeah. So black Americans actually, on average, as you know, have lower incomes than white Americans and are more likely to be confronted with conditions of economic deprivation and poverty, which is not to say that there is no poverty and economic deprivation among white Americans, but the incidence is higher among black Americans. And I think one of the myths that has emerged that's been shattered by research that people like Jonathan Mordick have done in the $2 a day project, where they actually surveyed people on a continuous basis to get information about their financial spending practices. One of the things that emerges from that research is it may actually be the case that poor people are better money managers than more affluent people because they have no choice, given their limited resources and the kinds of bills that they have to meet to make sure that their families have sufficient food or a roof over their head. And even then, they may not be able to ensure that there's enough money coming in to make sure that people have a safe and healthy quality of life in their families. So, so from that perspective, you might argue that there's really no need to give people financial literacy who are at the lowest end of the income scale. But you might say, well, okay, let's try to change their condition. Let's give them a significant infusion of resources. Will they do sensible things with it? Now, there's a certain paternalism associated with asking if people will do something sensible with a sum of money. But again, there is research on what happens when you give poor people additional cash transfers. And it appears that they do not use the funds for purposes that we might view as frivolous. So again, you might say, well, maybe there's not any significant need for financial literacy. But now we come to the kinds of sums of money that might be associated with a reparations program. And now we're talking about approximately $800,000 per black household. And that's not a trivial infusion of additional cash. It changes the family's profile in terms of its wealth. And so here we might say that there could be a value to providing financial management opportunities for those households because it's such a significant change in their financial profile that they may have to figure out ways in which they can behave very differently from how they have been in the past. So this would be a case where instead of trying to provide people with financial literacy without any finances to manage, you would definitely be providing financial literacy in the context of having finances to manage. And under those circumstances, I think there's potentially a significant amount of value to offering people financial management skills.
0: It makes total sense. And I think one thing that you know, you've know you written before, I think, is just that the idea that financial literacy without finance or access to some kind of resource to manage, is, it's, financial literacy doesn't help in that sense. But you were talking about the ideas of cash transfer, and you mentioned reparations, which I think is a perfect segue to talking about your potential solution, which is economic reparations. So could you go into that plan that you've developed and kind of the specifics of it, such as Who would get these monetary reparations? What amounts? Where would this money come from and how much time you think it would take just to start us off?
2: The eligible recipients for reparations for Black Americans. I mean, and from here to equality, we're making a case that's specific to Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. But, you know, obviously you can have Reparations projects for other types of atrocities that are directed against other people. In the U.S. context, for example, the Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II put in domestic confinement camps across the United States received $20,000 payments circa 1988 or 1989, somewhere in there. And that's a case in which a direct payment was made to eligible recipients. And so in a similar fashion, I think that the preponderance of a reparations fund that's intended to address the entire history of atrocities against Black Americans should involve direct payments to eligible recipients. Now, who would the eligible recipients be? the eligible recipients would be individuals who could demonstrate two things. First, by a lineage standard, that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And second, by an identity standard that for at least 12 years, before the adoption of a reparations program or the adoption of a study commission for a black reparations program for at least 12 years before that, whichever comes first, then would have to have self-identified as black, negro, or African American on an official document. So one of the possible official documents to use is your census responses, and you could make your census response to the race question public information. And that would be a way of demonstrating that you met the second standard. The first standard is going to require substantial genealogical inquiry. And then in our book, we actually propose that one of the tasks that a federal agency that would be executing a reparations project could do is provide individual claimants with the type of genealogical resources that they might need to establish the validity of their claims. How much would be required to meet the bill? Well, I've suggested at least 10 to $12 trillion. Where would it come from? It would come from the same place that all federal expenditure comes from. Ultimately, it would come from drafting the Treasury. And this would be no different from what was done recently with respect to the overnight expenditure of close to $2.5 trillion for the purposes of trying to address the coronavirus crisis when the CARES Act was passed.
0: What Dr. Darity is proposing with the $10 to $12 trillion reparations program is not a trivial injection of money. Just with the $2 trillion that was injected into the economy in an attempt to alleviate the economic pain caused by the coronavirus, investors and economists alike started to fear heavy inflation. When we're talking about giving to those eligible recipients a sum of money potentially five to six times that amount, which will then trickle through the economy, then the question of what that will do to inflation seems to be one of great importance
2: we acknowledge that the primary barrier to any new federal expenditure is whether or not there would be a significant inflation risk. And so any new federal expenditure program needs to be designed with that kept in mind. And so we were trying to figure out how you could make the kind of expenditure that's required to eliminate the racial wealth differential and minimize the risk of inflation. And so there were a couple of things that we suggest in the book. One is to spread the payments out over time so that you could eliminate the racial wealth gap, say, within a decade. But that would mean that the annual amounts that would be required would be somewhat lower than making the full outlay at at one time. And then the second thing we suggest is the possibility of making the payments in the form of comparatively less liquid assets so that there was not an immediate turnover or there was not a possibility of an immediate turnover of the funds into purely for consumption purposes. And so one way you could do that is to give people an endowment or a trust account where they could spend the interest off of the account in any given year at their own discretion but they would have to get approval of trustees of some sort for specific projects if they wanted to make use of the principle. And so that's another way of trying to reduce the inflation risk because you're trying to contain the amount of consumption expenditure that takes place in any given year.
0: Given that this is one of the more you could say sensitive topics that you know we've been discussing on this podcast. I want to ask, how do you think the discussion about race and economics has changed in the field of academic economics, as well as you think in the financial industry since you started? And why do you think that is?
2: Actually, I think that those are two sites where there really hasn't been much conversation about reparations. Where I've observed a significant change is in the conversations that were held by presidential candidates in 2019, where it seemed like it was the first time. In my lifetime and possibly the first time since the reconstruction era where you had credible candidates for the presidency actually talking about reparations at all using the term this was somewhat unique and unusual but i'm not aware of much conversation about this in the economics profession
0: so with everything going on in the news and all this coming to the forefront of our national conversation. What do you recommend students do now to educate themselves more about the economics of everything that's been going on with the the Black community throughout history?
2: I think that the way you phrased it is actually quite right. I think it's important for students. And, you know, I view myself as a permanent student. That's, That's one of the wonderful things about being an academic. But students in general, I think, should invest the time in learning more about what the accurate story is of our nation's history, and also an accurate story about the conditions that exist in the present moment. It's very striking that it took the visible, virally shared image of Mr. George Floyd being murdered by a policeman for large, large numbers of Americans to realize that anti-Black police violence is something that has been quite normal in this society for many, many years. If people had been better informed about the history of American life, about the conditions that existed around them in any present moment, they would not have viewed this, as some did temporarily, as an aberration. But they would have recognized that it was something that was quite routine, and it was something that we should have dealt with, a long, long time ago. So I think that the idea of students learning more about the racial history of the United States, which is the history of the United States, would be something that's really critical. And then the next step would be, I hope, that people would put forward their own support for a comprehensive national reparations program for Black American descendants of US slavery.
0: Well, with that, Dr. Darity, I wanna thank you so much for being on the podcast. I truly, truly think that you were the perfect person to talk to about this topic, and I hope to talk to you at some point in the future.
2: It'd be great. I'd be glad to come back and talk to you again. Thank you for having me.
0: So Cassie, that was a truly, truly eye-opening conversation. Uh, What were some of the key takeaways you got from it?
1: Yeah, one thing that stood out to me was that Dr. Darity kept coming back to the difference between wealth and income. And I mean, this is a topic that I explored um, going into this podcast, but um, I didn't really connect it so much as to what he did, which was generational wealth. Um, He talked about how your income may be high, but that doesn't necessarily equate to having a high amount of wealth. I mean, your income, which is something that you earn regularly, is something that you might think equates to having a lot of money later on. But then you have to factor in expenses, uh, like paying off debt, which means that your net earnings at the end might actually be lower than you went in expecting. And especially considering how Black people's relationship with getting credit has um, been historically, it's not hard to see how their income might not contribute towards building wealth as much as you might think it would. Because if they have these higher interest rates that they have to prioritize. Um, And that's something that I know I'm going to have to experience soon with student loan debt, um, (laughs) but also mortgage debt, um, I guess, when I get a house later on, among other kinds of expenses.
0: Yeah, no, I I think you nailed it exactly, Cassie. And I think another recurring claim that Dr. Darity kept coming back to, uh, or was trying to convey was that. There are multiple points throughout history, uh, beginning with, you know, the initial failed Special Lawyers 15 and those 40-acre land grants, to events like Tulsa, where, you know, Black communities that were prosperous were destroyed, uh, to things like, you know, redlining and uh, racialized segregation and other racist just policies in general, where opportunities to build wealth for Black communities and families were denied or even destroyed. And when we compare that to the history of wealth-building opportunities for the predominantly white and even Asian immigrant communities in America, which, you know, they didn't have any broken promises or racialized targeted wealth destruction, it's not hard to see how trying to build generational wealth has worked against Black Americans for so long, leading to the racial economic inequalities we see today, whether that's in housing, education, employment, access to finance... Uh, business development, and ultimately in the racial wealth gap itself.
1: Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And I think ultimately, uh, racial economic inequality really requires a multidisciplinary understanding. It requires economists, historians, sociologists, all to put their best minds together to try to understand this
0: issue. Yeah, and I hope that we've made a point to our listeners that in order to understand the racial economic inequalities that we see today, you need to look beyond the news. You need to look beyond the politics And understand the history and economics of black people in this country. And I think that we also haven't seen the last of our wonderful guest, Dr. William Darity Jr. I have a feeling that if if a reparations program comes to be in this country, he's going to have a large role to play in that. Also, Cassie, you were such a great first co-host for this podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me as a co-host, Rohan. I really look forward to co-hosting more episodes in the future.
0: Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at Streetfins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcaststreetfins.com. Thanks once again to Dr. William Darity Jr. for his insights today. I hope you understand the issue of racial economic inequality in a more simplified way. I highly recommend checking out his book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Once again, we are really happy that you are taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.